We'll hear argument now in Merck KGA versus Integra Life Sciences. Mr. Rosencrantz. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Your Honors, there is no dispute among the parties nor among the 19 amicus briefs presented before the Court today. As to the answer to the threshold legal question, everyone agrees that the FDA exemption does indeed apply with full force to the sorts of experiments that are conducted and that would be relevant to the FDA in consideration of an investigational new drug application, a so-called IND. So the battleground now shifts to Integra's alternative arguments in support of the judgment. Well, would you just clarify something for me as we start to consider the case? I guess this thing went to the jury under an instruction that tried to come to grips with the definition under the statute in some way. Was that instruction one to which uh, Merck preserved an, uh, an objection? Uh, no, Your Honor. We did not object to the core of the jury's instruction stating the legal standard. Do you think have, it was properly stated in that instruction? The core of the instruction, yes, Your Honor, That's was — That's as good as we could do. Uh, uh, Your Honor, I believe uh, — uh, the answer is the core was as good as this core can do. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and under that — you think that Merck was entitled to a directed verdict? Yes, Your evidence? Honor. Uh, it was inv- entitled to a verdict as a matter of law, but let okay, me just — Okay, but the, the uh, Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit did not address the case in — by looking um, — at the evidence and whether a directed verdict should have been given? Your Honor, the, the Federal Circuit did understand that this was a JMAL case, but I know, but it seemed to decide the case based on its view of the statute as just applying to generic drugs or something like that. That is absolutely correct, Your Honor. So it didn't, in fact, come to grips with the evidence. It absolutely did not come to grips with the evidence, nor did it grapple with the alternative arguments that Integra was presenting. Yeah. So maybe all we have to do is, is deal with whether that court should have addressed the evidence. That would be one answer, Your Honor, reverse and not addressing the alternative legal grounds. But I would urge this court to address the alternative legal grounds because they raise all of them. You mean like the um, uh, research tools problem? No, Your Honor, because the research tools problem was never presented no. as an issue before the jury or before the district court. Or the TRIPS and treaty? No, Your Honor. No. In fact, that's not even raised by by respondents. All right. And how about the common law research exemption? Uh, I would I would urge the court not to broach the subject of any of the questions that are not properly presented. Okay, to this so all we're doing is looking at the statute. We're, uh, yes, Your Honor, we're looking at the statute, okay. but it is, an, it is important in answer to the very first question to embellish a bit because the lower courts need this court's guidance uh, because every one of the theories on which Integra defends the judgment below raise exactly the same problems that the Federal Circuit's opinion raises. They defy the plain language of the statute Congress passed. They are equally at odds with the purpose that Congress had in mind when it passed the FDA exemption. Would the alternative grounds that you're discussing now passed on by the Federal Circuit? Your Honor, they were not passed on by the Federal Circuit. 
uh, except perhaps to the extent that the Federal Circuit may have concluded that all pre- — excuse me — that safety is the only issue before the FDA when it is considering an investigational new drug application, or that a drug innovator may not harbor additional purposes in an experiment beyond the FDA exemption, or that the exe- — excuse me — beyond FDA regulatory purposes, or, third, that the exemption does not cover efforts to optimize the drug candidate after is identified, and that drug candidate is, in fact, the lead candidate. Those are the three legal theories, Your Honors, on which Integra is resting its defense of the judgment below. And every single one of them is either incorrect as a matter of law or immaterial as a matter of law. If this Court were to ask Integra to come up with a single genuine issue of fact that does not relate to one or another of those three propositions, it will not be able to do so, save a footnote to be addressed later about the credibility of witnesses on a topic on which Integra never argued the witnesses were not credible. Just beginning with the safety question, and I'll defer to the government on that, because the government can speak better than anyone else as to what it is that is relevant to the FDA in consideration of an IND. To su- suffice it to say that the regulations say, as a matter of law, that safety is not the only consideration before the FDA as it considers an IND. That the FDA cares very much about whether a drug will work, efficacy, The FDA cares very much about how it works, mechanism of action. It cares about what the body does to that drug, pharmacokinetics, and it cares very much about what that drug does to the body, pharmacology. And Integra's position before the jury and and before this Court depends upon the proposition that it can bring in a witness to argue that the law is other than what the law clearly is. And the same thing goes for the so-called GLP studies that the FDA considers in connection with safety data, but need not limit itself to uh, uh, GLP studies when it's considering those other IND-relevant topics. Mr. Rosecrans, just one um, piece of information, because the IND is so important at this point, is it in the record? Do we have a copy of the IND? The IND, Your Honor, is not in the record because it was excluded from evidence, which may be why the jury reached the wrong conclusion. But I hasten to add that will not be uncommon in these sorts of cases because there are many circumstances in which an, uh, a preclinical study begins and fails, and the IND will never materialize. There are circumstances in which a preliminary injunction is brought and won, and the research stops cold so an IND never materializes. And again, it's it's important to understand as one assesses the FDA exemption that the inquiry is always ex ante. It is always, what is a reasonable drug innovator? What does that drug innovator or scientist know at the point in time at which it is about to perform the next set of experiments? So you always reflect back to a point in time before the IND materializes. Mr. Rosencrantz, the, the, uh, the uh, items you, you listed earlier, 
seem to me to be uh, more narrow than, than what I took to be the point of your opening brief, which was that the decision below was wrong because the uh, uh, the Federal Circuit simply excluded all consideration of materials prepared for purposes of the IND as uh, as opposed to materials prepared for the for the drug application later on. Are you abandoning that uh, that that more expansive position? No, Your Honor. Uh, because I don't read the opinion that way. I don't think that opinion has to be read to say that they're not going to allow in anything that. Uh, uh, that goes to the IND. Your Honor, there is certainly a way to read the Federal Circuit's opinion, and this is also in response to Justice O'Connor's earlier question, in which it did grapple with the very questions we're talking about now and did answer the questions about whether it's just safety, and I believe the Federal Circuit believed that only safety data were relevant. That is certainly what it indicated in oral argument, and also that dual purposes are not permissible. So let me now turn to the dual purpose question, because it's another major theme. Have you answered my question? You're you're abandoning the assertion that the Federal Circuit did not consider anything that didn't go to the IND, uh, that didn't go to the, 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 Uh, the, the drug application. No, Your Honor. I believe that there are two ways to read the Federal Circuit's opinion. To the extent that the Federal Circuit said nothing before the clinical stage is uh, relevant to the FDA exemption, if that is what the Federal Circuit held, we are, uh, we are not abandoning the position that that is wrong. I understand that there is another way to read the Federal Circuit's opinion that grapples with the subsidiary questions that we're discussing here, which are all fairly presented in our question presented, and that's what I'm addressing myself to now. Uh, well, your first answer, uh, the, are you relying on what the Federal Circuit said in its opinion, and it's in 10A of our cert petition appendix, uh, that is it's the Federal Circuit's statement of the question presented, whether the preclinical research conducted under Scripps-Merck agreement is exempt from liability for infringement of integrous patents. Yes, Your Honor. And then two pages later on 12A, the Federal Circuit states its conclusion, and I quote, thus the Scripps work sponsored by Merck was not solely for uses reasonably related to clinical testing for the FDA. Yeah, but it, 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 it's not at all clear in the opinion that, that, the, that the Court was using preclinical and clinical in the very technical sense that you, were, that you use it, which, which means uh, uh, clinical is, is stuff uh, submitted for the, for the uh, drug application and preclinical is, is, is for the earlier application. That is not at all Your clear. Honor, it's not at all clear. And just as in Boyle, when this Court faced a situation where it wasn't clear what the Federal Sur- — oh, excuse me, what the Court of Appeals held, the, cur- the, the best thing for this Court to do is to address what appears to be the threshold question that the Court of Appeals decided, uh, but then also to address the subsidiary questions on the basis of which Integra is defending the judgment below. A moment ago, ago, you were reading from 12A. Was it the first sentence you were reading from? Uh, It was the first paragraph, and I was reading from the end of that paragraph, Your Honor, which begins thus, three lines uh, or really, to the, the word thus is at the uh, end of the third line from the bottom of that paragraph, Your Honor. 
Thank you. And so uh, I was saying earlier that a critical component of Integra's case revolves around the notion that the use may not have more than one purpose, and that purpose can only be FDA-directed. That argument is also incorrect as a matter of law. And one way we can tell that is that there is no such thing as a preclinical course of study that has only one purpose. When one is studying mechanism of action, a scientist is deeply interested not just in how this drug works, but in how the disease works. And the language of the statute is, of course, the, the touchstone here. The statute is triggered by uses. The use in this context is an experiment, and the statute covers provides a safe harbor for experiments that develop the sorts of information that are relevant to the FDA. If would, that would that would would that be uh, explained by the research tool doctrine or not? No, absolutely not, Your Honor. The research tool question. Let me begin by saying these were not research tools. These RGD peptides were the objects of study. Would, the, would you ever use the, the peptide as a research Ab tool? Was my was my question? Oh yes, Your Honor. There are circumstances in which these peptides could be used as research uh, tools to stunt the growth of blood vessels and study uh, what happens next with other compounds. But they were emphatically not used as research tools in this case. In this case, they were the objects of study, and Integra won a jury verdict based upon that presentation. In fact, never argued to any court or to the jury that there's a research tool carve-out. And so, uh, uh, so I was just talking about the, um, the subjective purpose earlier, and it is, again, it's important to note that the information can be used for other purposes. There's nothing in the statute that prohibits that. Now, let me turn just briefly, then, to what is often one of the most important questions in these FDA exemption cases, which is the timeline question. At what point in the arc of drug development is it unreasonable for a jury to conclude that the FDA is an inappropriate audience for the next set of experiments? Our, our position, and, and people may differ as a matter of law as to whether it is earlier, but our argument is at a bare minimum, at the point in time at which a drug developer has a known structure and cures a disease in an animal with that known structure, all eyes turn to drug development, which is to say, all eyes turn to the FDA. As a matter of law, everything after that, so long as, as it's relevant to the FDA, is, uh, is FDA, is appropriate to view as FDA direct. Do you agree then that at whatever period, however you want to describe the period, uh, at which the researcher is basically trying to figure out what drug to concentrate on, that that period is too far back in time to come within the exception? No, Your Honor, that's exactly the trigger moment. If it has a structure and it's investigating analogs of that structure to figure out which of these various structures are the best ones to move forward, everything from that point on is FDA-directed. Okay, here's, what, here's the problem I have with, with your argument. I can understand that argument more easily under the statute, under the text of the statute as it is written that I can understand it under the instruction that you agreed to. Because the instruction that you agreed to had a limitation, a textual limitation, which is not in the statute itself, that refers to relatively directly 
as describing the relationship between this information and its object. Uh, and if we decide this case on the basis of the statute, and we read the statute more broadly than the instruction, then you're getting something that you're not entitled to because you agreed to the instruction. If we decide this issue by, by construing the statute as if your instruction is correct, then we're making an assumption about the proper construction of the statute that has not been argued here. Well, uh, Your Honor — It seems to me that the law of the case as to what the statute means for for your case is set by the instruction. And that is why I am reluctant to get into the issue that you raise here, because I think we're — we're, we're rather — you are limited and we are tied in what we can do as a result of your agreement with the instruction. Your Honor, and I, I see my time is running out. I'd like to reserve a bit for rebuttal, so let me answer just briefly. Under Propratnik, of course, this Court is not bound by law of the case by the instruction. But the instruction, as I understand it, says exactly what the statute says — Reasonably directly is simply another way of saying, are these activities reasonably related to the FDA purposes? And every one of the comparative experiments is relevant to the FDA's inquiry, whether this drug or that is the optimum drug. Every experiment that is involved here, and there were only 10 percent that were comparative in nature, develops information about the lead drug candidate, including understanding why this one works rather than that one. So if it's all right, Your Honors, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Rosengren. Mr. Joseph. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, and we believe the question before the Court is the proper construction of the statute, and we believe the lower courts committed three important legal errors that should be corrected. The first is in drawing the clinical preclinical distinction. And in understanding that, Justice Scalia, I think the important thing to understand is that clinical studies refer to studies conducted on humans. And at the IND stage, the whole question is to decide whether studies should be conducted on humans. So at that point in time, the only information that's available is the preclinical studies on animals and in test tubes. Um, so when the court distinguished between preclinical and clinical, it was essentially saying you cannot do the information that's necessary to submit an IND, necessary to do clinical trials, necessary to get your drug approved. And that's why we, it seems to us that that's so clearly wrong. Do you have to have the FDA's permission to start clinical testing? Yes. That's the purpose of an IND application. Is the, whole, the only thing that FDA is looking at at that point is whether to permit human clinical trials to proceed. The second important legal error committed by the Federal Circuit was in apparently concluding that only tests regarding the compounds ultimately submitted to, F- to FDA in an IND are subject to the protection. Now, the problem with that is that a company can decide which specific compound to submit only by first comparing doing studies on that compound and on others in order to determine which would be the best compound to submit, which would strike the best balance between obtaining health effects while avoiding safety concerns. So if the exemption only — you state again what you say the the second error was? Uh, The second error, we believe, is that the Federal Circuit indicated that only studies undertaken on the single compound ultimately submitted in an IND are protected by the exception. And the problem with that is that I can't figure out what that one compound is until I've done studies on it and on other compounds to determine which is the best to submit. But that might well well determine whether the uh, research was relatively directly related. 
I mean, if I were a juror, I would, uh, I would say it's relatively di- directly related if it uh, relates to that particular compound which is ultimately submitted and not relatively directly related if it was uh, preliminary trying to find out which compound to submit. We, w- we would look at it this way. If I'm, say I have 12 compounds that I'm going to test and decide which is best and go forward with, at the time I'm doing a test on any one of those compounds, if those tests succeed, it's reasonably foreseeable I'll submit an IND for that compound. That, uh, yes, I understand all that. But I'm just the, saying that that is certainly one interpretation of reasonably directly. And if that is so, then you are erroneous in your assumption that the question before this Court is the meaning of the statute. It might not be. It might be. It might be the meaning of the instruction. Right. Well, I think we would disagree with that for two reasons. Uh, the first is that the Federal Circuit, as, as Justice O'Connor noted, reser- resolved these questions entirely as a matter of law based on a de novo interpretation of the statute without regard to the jury instruction. And that's the holding that's now before this Court. What's your position on the jury instruction? Does it uh, correctly state the law? We think that it's, it's in, construed correctly. We think that it's correct, but just too general to be of assistance to the courts in, in, in addressing the more specific questions at issue here. And this is, remember, Merck has sought judgment as a matter of law. And when a party seeks judgment as a matter of law, the courts are not constrained to only applying the law that's found in the jury instruction. They can also articulate and apply and do all the time other legal principles that are relevant. Uh, Propotnick v. St. Louis is a great example of a case where this Court did that. Now, there would be a problem if the jury instruction was inconsistent with the correct rule of law, because then there could be a waiver concern. But we don't see that at issue here, because the jury instruction, we think, is just too general to speak to these issues. Um, uh, but getting, getting, getting back to my point about why it can't be limited to that single well, compound. What was that, that the jury instruction is too general? I mean, if both parties agreed to it, aren't they, in a sense, bound by it? We, we think that the petitioner should not and, and is not arguing inconsistently with the jury instruction. The point is just the juries, being lay people, tend to be instructed. Well, the petitioner said he agreed with the core of the instruction, whatever that is. I, I think that's just with the general principles. Um, I mean, for, take, take, for example, a, a negligence case. Juries are instructed all the time that the defendant has a duty of ordinary care. And then courts on appeal will determine more specific legal questions, whether entire classes of conduct do or do not comply with the ordinary care in much greater detail than the instructions to the jury. An example of a case where this Court did that would be Schenker v. B&O Railroad at 374 U.S. 1. And we think that in, a, in, in determining whether a petitioner is entitled to judge as a matter of law, this Court should just articulate and apply the specific legal principles here that are not inconsistent with the jury. Was the Court below wrong in saying that the um, statute was enacted only to uh, help generic drug development? Yes, and in fact, this Court already held in Eli Lilly v. Medtronic that the statute is not limited to generic drugs. In fact, it's not even limited to drugs, but also applies to things like medical devices, food additives, color additives. And it's a very important point because the the Federal Circuit thought the statute should be construed in an artificially narrow manner in light of a supposed focus on generic drugs, which is just inconsistent with with this Court's authoritative construction of it. Is that going to be your third point, the third error that the Court supposedly committed? No. The third is the error committed by the District Court and relied on by respondents here, which is the statement that FDA only considers safety and not efficacy in determining whether to permit human clinical trials to proceed. It's a very important point because at the IND stage, the question for FDA is whether a drug should be given to human beings. And because there's no such thing as an absolutely safe drug, because all drugs entail at least some safety risks, FDA will not let human clinical trials proceed unless there's some reason to believe that the study could be useful. 
it's a, it's a benefit-risk analysis. The Court looks to whether the, the potential benefits of the, of the test would outweigh the risks of the test. And if not, the Court will not let the t- test proceed. Um, now, Congress charged FDA with doing that by instructing FDA to determine whether the drug would pose an unreasonable risk to the health and safety of humans. And FDA has construed that, as I said, to mean a, a benefit-risk. The most express articulation of that comes in the guidance document that FDA has put out regarding the preparation of the investigator's brochure, which is a required part of an d submission. And the investigators and the, the guidance document explains the investigator's brochure must provide sufficient information for the, for the reader to, quote, make his or her own unbiased risk-benefit assessment of the proposed clinical trial. Uh, that's set forth on uh, the bottom of page 10 of our brief. And in order what to What are commit, the consequences if someone goes ahead and conducts a clinical trial without the approval of the FDA? Uh, that's contrary to federal law. Um, I, I, Certainly, it would be severe civil consequences, and I, my guess is there are criminal consequences for doing that too. Um, your, your time is short, so could you tell us how far back you think, under the statute, you can go and not and be, be within the safe harbor? Yes, we think that the proper test looks to whether a company is trying to develop a particular drug by which we mean a substance with particular characteristics designed to achieve particular objectives. To explain that, we recognize that basic scientific research into human biology and disease processes is not protected. That's just too far down the stream of, of causation. But once I get a particular concept for a drug that says I'm going to treat the disease in a particular way by targeting a particular part of the disease process, then we think that the, the work done going forward, which includes comparing different substances to figure out which would be the best active ingredient, is protected. To, to provide a concrete example, why, why something. isn't that basic research? I mean, I want to. I want to treat this uh, disease by stifling the development of blood cells around it or something like that. And then you ask yourself, gee, what would stifle the uh, production of blood cells? And let's assume there hasn't been any research done in that field before. You wouldn't consider that basic research? So long as the idea I have in my in my head is I want to create a, a drug to treat this disease that will stifle blood cells. Um, no, and here's why. Um, the basic insight, and then I'll explain it, is that the first time a study, a study is run on a particular substance, if that first study is not protected, then the exemption is worthless because I'd have to commit that infringing study before I gain the protection of the exemption. So we would say that this, in this case, for example, I think it's easier in particulars, the basic research was figuring out that the key to cancer is the key to the growth of tumors is angiogenesis, and the key to blocking angiogenesis is blocking uh, the alpha V beta 3 receptors. That's the basic research into how the body works. But once I then start trying to figure out which substance would best block an alpha V beta 3 receptor, it's fairly specific because I know what that receptor is, I know what it's like, I know what characteristics I'm going to need in the drug to block that. And when I try different things out to block that, that first experiment at that point has to be protected because otherwise I'd have to commit the infringement before I could get the, gain the invention. The Did the earlier. Harbor. Did the earlier process that you described, um, the basic research, is that within the common law research exemption? The it, it would be if it was non-commercial. I, the, how, how does the common law research exemption figure into this case, if at all? Uh, it, it, it's not directly before here because petitioner has not relied on it at all, and for good reason, which is that the courts have consistently held um, that the common law research exception applies only to non-commercial activity. Um, the, the most obvious example would be kids in their basements. But when a, a drug company that its entire business is developing and manufacturing drugs undertakes the activity, that's commercial, and that's never been considered protected by the common law exception. 
Does Scripps uh, is Scripps in, in business too? Um, I see, my red light is on. If I could answer the question, uh, some some of Scripps' work, when it's working directly for Merck, certainly is. We would think, you know, tied closely to Merck's commercial activities. Scripps may also do some other Thank general you. research. That Mr. Flores. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court stated in Black v. Cutter Laboratories, which is cited on page 27 of our brief, as follows, at times the atmosphere in which an opinion is written may become so surcharged that unnecessarily broad statements are made. In such a case, it is our duty to look beyond the broad sweep of the language and determine for ourselves precisely the ground on which the judgment rests. This is such a case. The judgment of the Federal Circuit was its order affirming the District Court's denial of Merck's motion for judgment as a matter of law. The precise grounds for the Federal Circuit's uh, opinion is set forth in page 14A uh, in the appendix attached to um, uh, Merck's petition for certiorari. And there the Federal Circuit said that it upheld the denial of Merck's motion for judgment as a matter of law because the Federal Circuit discerned no error in the District Court's interpretation of Section 271E1, which raises the question. Where, where is this? Uh, page 14A. What, yes, what are you quoting from? Is it, is it just before the letter B on 14A? Yes, Your Honor. What are the first few words of the sentence there that you quoted? Because the language and context of the safe harbor do not embrace the Scripps Merck general biomedical experimentation, this Court discerns no error. Exactly. And so they're saying that they're wrong on their ground for thinking that the language and context don't embrace it. Since they used the wrong standard, they never got to the question of whether the evidence warranted a directed verdict. So I don't see how we avoid looking at all what you'd call the atmospherics. The precise holding and the reasoning of the Federal Circuit was that it found no error in what the district courts Because they interpreted the statute in a particular way. Isn't that right? I'm I'm asking. I'm not. No, Your Honor. No. The the only interpretation of the statute that can be found in the district court's order denying Merck's motion for judgment as a matter of law is the standard articulated in the jury instruction. No, but uh, uh, I think uh, I think the justice was asking whether it was the court of appeals that applied a particular standard, and certainly it had to have been. Didn't the Court of Appeals have a particular standard as to what constituted general biomedical experimentation as opposed to the kind of experimentation that's covered by the, by the safe harbor exemption? It must have had. I mean, how, how, could, you, how could you rule on the, on the question before you unless you have in your head a notion of what the safe harbor consists of and, and what, what is beyond it? The question before the Federal Circuit was whether the district court erred 
by not applying the rational predicate interpretation of Section 271E, which was the sole focus of Merck's appeal to the Federal Circuit. Why should we say that's the question when the Federal Circuit itself said what I read before from, from 10A? Your Honor, on page 10A, the Federal Circuit said, thus, and this is in the, the, the last sentence in the middle paragraph of the page, thus this Court must determine whether section, the Section 271E safe harbor reaches back down the chain of experimentation to embrace development and identification of new drugs that will in turn be subject to FDA approval. That would answer that question. It does not. The Federal Circuit answered that in the negative. The Federal Circuit rejected the interpretation advanced by Merck, which was the rational predicate standard, which was basically a causal test, and held that the district court's interpretation under the intermedic standard that's given in the jury instruction that Merck now concedes is the correct standard. So they said it does not, the, the, the safe harbor does not reach, among other things, back down the chain of experimentation to embrace the development of new drugs that will be subject to FDA approval. In your opinion, is that statement, as I read it, I left out the word identification, uh, as I read it, is that statement a correct statement of the law or an incorrect statement? That is a correct statement of the law. That is a correct statement of the law. So then I take it the other side thinks that it isn't. Because, for example, you could have a situation where you are developing drugs, and in developing drugs, you do some experiments and you get some information that would be useful to the FDA in the IND process, and therefore they are within the safe harbor. No, Your Honor. I believe the Solicitor General agrees with this aspect of the uh, Federal Circuit's opinion and makes that clear at the bottom of page 15 and on to page 16 of the Solicitor General's brief. Merck no longer challenges this aspect of the Federal Circuit's opinion. Merck concedes that there are experiments in the basic research phase that, although they're necessary in the chain of causation, are not exempt. The rational, Merck has abandoned the rational predicate standard that the Federal Circuit rejected here. Mr. Flores, when I asked you about the sentence on page 10, I intended not the one that you read, but an earlier one that precedes it, and that is the question arising in this case is whether the preclinical research, that is the research on animals as distinguished from humans, conducted under the Scripps-Merck agreement, is exempt from liability for infringement of integrous patents. Now, if you just took that as the question, then you'd say this circuit is drawing the line between clinical and preclinical. It's not a crystal clear opinion by any means, but that is one question presented that they've identified. And how did they answer that question? Um, Your Honor, I disagree. I think the operative language in this sentence is the reference to the scripts Merck is to research conducted under the scripts Merck agreement. That's that's the way I read it. And and this is why I I was uh, disagreeing with uh, with counsel for the other side. Well, counsel 
ultimately conceded you could read it not to draw the line between clinical and preclinical. And the way you read this sentence is the question they say is not whether preclinical research falls under 271E1. It's whether the preclinical research conducted under the Scripps-Merck agreement. And then the next sentence explains what that means. The experiments did not supply information for submission to the United States Food and Drug Administration, but instead identified the best drug candidate. So I think what what they're describing as the question presented is whether preclinical research that is that is not directed to supplying information for submission to the Food and Drug Administration, but instead to selecting the drug candidate, whether that type of preclinical research is uh, is within the safe harbor. Yes. In fact, Justice Scalia, if this opinion by the Federal Circuit were interpreted to hold that preclinical experiments are categorically excluded from the scope of the exemption, that holding would be inconsistent with the district court's interpretation of the law, because the district court's interpretation of the law was that preclinical experiments are potentially eligible, and the district court submitted the question to the jury. So the Federal Circuit would be completely inconsistent if, on the one hand, it categorically excluded preclinical experiments, and on the other hand, it uh, approved the district court's reasoning. This very dialogue makes me able to ask a question that I think will reveal better to you what I need an answer to. Uh, it, reading this and listening to the discussion and your use of the word atmospherics suggests that the opinion below is pretty foggy. We have Merck, the Food and Drug Administration, the government, the entire biotechnology industry, the drug industry of the United States, and everybody else telling us that they're wrong in the way they stated the standard. And you yourself urge us to look beyond the way they stated it. So, what's the harm, and why wouldn't we, given this and the unclarity, just try to do a better job at stating the standard, say that's the standard, and then send it back, and then you can make all your arguments there about how it applies? Yes. The reason it would not be appropriate for the Court to do so is because no standard other than the intermedic standard that was applied by the District Court was ever suggested to the District Court. There was only one standard ever considered. We're not reviewing the District Court's opinion. I mean, we granted certiorari after a particular question which deals with the Court of Appeals opinion. We don't ordinarily simply compare the Court of Appeals' opinion with the District Court's opinion to see if they parse. Yes, Your Honor. But in this case, the issue before the District Court was whether the District Court erred in denying a motion for judgment as a matter of law. Well, don't you think that the Federal Circuit may have uh, focus too much on, on generic drug applications? Do you think it was right about that? I think the Federal Circuit was right as a factual matter in describing the impetus for, for Congress adopting Section 271. Well, it seemed to be driven by its very narrow focus on generic drug development. Um, do you, do you think that the efficacy of the drug being suggested plays a role in the IND application? 
No, Your Honor, it does not. See, I think there may be a difference there, because I think the other side thinks that how the drug is expected to work in practice and whether it, in fact, will attack a certain disease is part of what the FDA looks at. Apparently, the government takes that position as nearly as I could determine, but you reject that as well. Yes, Your Honor. I think the answer to that is in the statute. Uh, it's, a, it's section, uh, it's 21 United States Code 355I3BI. And in that, uh, I. I. Three. Mm-hmm. B. I again. And in this section, Congress is telling the FDA what are the considerations that the FDA has to weigh in making the safety decision, uh, the decision whether to allow clinical trials. Is, is this text that you're referring to is it someplace? Is the text someplace where we can look at it while you're explaining this to us? No, Your Honor, it's not in the appendix, unfortunately. Um, let, let me read that statute, because it's instructive about what Congress told FDA to weigh for the But does the, does the statute, uh, is that the only place we would look to decide whether safety is the only consideration for the FDA? No, Your Honor, the regulations, I believe, address that. And uh, the regulations at 31 2.22a, uh, which is in the uh, uh, appendix attached to Integra's brief on the merits. And I'll read that. It says, but what you, do, you? You, you do agree, do you not, that the government does not agree with you on this point? The government disagrees, Your Honor. What, what are you reading from? Uh, page 3a in the uh, uh, addendum to Integra's brief. Um, that's 21 CFR section 312.22a. It states that the FDA's primary objectives in reviewing an IND are in all phases of the investigation to ensure the safety and rights of subjects and in phase two and three to help assure that the quality of the scientific investigation of the drugs is adequate to permit an evaluation of the drug's effectiveness and safety. Okay, that talks about the, the, the primary concern. There is certainly going to be concern with efficacy to this extent. Um, they are going to want to know before they allow clinical trials whether the drug that uh, it is proposed to give to pa- cancer patients has some relationship to cancer as opposed to the common cold. Uh, it, admittedly, at the clinical trial, they're trying to find out how effective it is on human beings, but there's got to be some threshold showing of effectiveness. They can't simply uh, ignore effectiveness and look at safety entirely prior to that point. In fact, that paragraph refers to effectiveness as I read it. Okay. Yes, it does, Your Honor, but it, does, it refers to it in the context of phases two and three. And the simple fact is that until there's clinical trials in humans, there's no way to tell whether this drug is going to be effective. But there fact, is at least, there's got to be some way to tell whether it even addresses the disease. That is essentially a threshold effectiveness question. The FDA statutes and regulations do not use the term efficacy 
to describe that. In Section 355I3BI, uh, when Congress listed the factors to consider, what it listed was not efficacy. Efficacy is not to be found. How did Congress listed. describe the need that there be some relationship between the consequences of taking the given drug and the disease which is supposed to be addressed by taking the drug? If they didn't use the word efficacy, what word did they use? They used they, the word effectiveness, which is pretty close. No, Your Honor, they use the word in the statute, the condition for which the drug is to be investigated. Well, that's important because it's, they say they want to know the pharmacological action of the drug in relation to its proposed therapeutic indication. The reason I take it the word efficacy is not there directly is because that word has a history, the Kefauver hearings, and it was involving drugs that don't do anything. Safety is a different matter. But, of course, when you consider whether something is safe, you must know, since, for example, cancer drugs poison people, the extent to which that poisoning is outbalanced by its effect in curing people. So how could you possibly, particularly where cancer is at issue, know whether this is an appropriately safe drug without knowing how effective it is, as well as knowing the side effects that are uh, that are harmful. If I knew it, there was any answer to that question at all, I might be tempted to agree with you, because it doesn't use the word. But what's the answer? The answer is that the FDA considers what information is available to it. It does not have information about the effectiveness of the drug, because clinical trials have not taken place. And therefore, the regulations and the statutes say you do the, the, what you can. You look at the condition for which the drug. Why wouldn't it have the information about effectiveness on animals? I mean, the, if, if the you show that the the all, all the FDA is interested in is it didn't kill the animal. N- never mind whether it was effective to cure the tumor. The FDA is concerned with safety in animals. And there may be some cases in which there's a known safety risk to a drug, and there'll be a heightened look at potential benefits in order to balance that out. But the regulations focus on safety. And in this particular case — But it's absolutely clear, I thought, that the FDA at the end of the day and some of these um, drug applications ends up looking at — not only safety, but how effective it is. And sometimes if the safety risk is minimal, but the effectiveness is great, I understood at least that could affect the decisions. So I would think that you would want to encourage uh, the exemption to cover those matters. Your Honor, of course, FDA is very concerned about efficacy, and it's concerned about that after it gets data from human clinical trials. That's the, that is the basis on which. Well, I, I'm not sure if there's data earlier at the IND stage as a result of the lab tests and the animal tests. I would think that would be part of the exemption. If if efficacy or some information about what benefits the drug might have is probably a better way to phrase it is considered at the safety stage as part of the safety balancing then it's got to be done under good laboratory practices. Well, because well, it would be suppose, su- suppose that we concluded 
So, uh, well, I don't want to cut you off. Go, go ahead, please, if I cut you off. Yeah. If — I believe the Solicitor General's point is that the safety decision is a practical one, and you've got to look at both sides of the ledger, potential harm, potential benefit. I don't believe it's proper to call that efficacy. But whatever you call it, if it's part of the safety balancing, it has to be done under good laboratory procedures. That, I think, is clear from the FDA regulations. And as a matter of policy, it wouldn't make any sense for the FDA to say that half of the safety equation need not be done under good laboratory practices. Both the parts of the safety equation have to be done under that. I don't, so, so what? I don't understand what conclusion that leads to. Well, Justice Scalia, let me say that I think that this whole discussion about the interpretation of the FDA law is really somewhat off the point. I, I was beginning to think that, too. And, <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because we're not here to judge the legality of an FDA action in its discretion, saying we want to consider preclinical Yeah, but if you, the reason you brought it up is because a particular certificate that is for a safety-certified lab is not applicable to the lab that used this stuff. That's why you brought it up. Like that is correct, Your And uh, so I, I understand that, and you'd have to conclude for them to win. But suppose I did conclude. Suppose for hypothetical, uh, say, for the sake of — as a hypothetical, suppose I thought, yes, this does include the safety part, uh, looking at how effective drugs are, too. Suppose I concluded that the statute meant sometimes you could do that in an ordinary laboratory that didn't have the special certificate. Suppose I concluded that, indeed, you could uh, look well in advance uh, of the uh, clinical test period to get the information for the IND. Uh, and suppose I concluded that sometimes uh, where it was reasonably related, you could, in fact, Look at other drugs, too, that are related to the ones you do. If I concluded that, and I'm not saying I would, then would you concede that uh, directed verdict would have been appropriate against you? No, Your Honor. Because, and what's your strongest argument that it wouldn't? Well, Your Honor, there's numerous admissions on the record that Merck made which would indicate that the, that the program carried out at Scripps was not reasonably related to the FDA, that the real FDA work was being done in Germany, that the majority of these experiments conducted by Scripps were conducted on chicken embryos, which Merck's own scientists agree have nothing to do with safety. And by logical extension, they can't tell you much about efficacy either. Uh, Merck agreed that a, lo- a significant portion of these experiments in which uh, Merck was looking for non-peptide compounds as possible drug candidates uh, is, is something that uh, we don't. Would- we- I hope we don't have to, at this Court, look at all the evidence and try to sort it out that way. What we have to focus on is whether the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit was in error in articulating the scope of the exemption. Your Honor, this Court does not have to get into Rule 50 review of the evidence here. No. Because there's no dispute about the legal standard. We've all heard that this morning. The only other possible issue is Rule 50 review, but Merck has well, failed. Well, I thought the issue was whether the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit correctly uh, determined the scope of the exemption. If they were wrong about it, then it is open to us to correct that and send it back. Your Honor, the Federal Circuit didn't determine the scope of the invention. 
there's it's it's exemption the statutory exemption i thought that was what we were looking at yes that's that's what i was referring to the federal circuit didn't articulate a standard for that the federal circuit approved the district court's use of the intermedic standard under which preclinical experiments are potentially well, eligible. But it certainly thought that the FDA considers only safety and nothing else, um, that it was directed at generic drugs, not others, and that um, there was a cutoff point uh, earlier than that uh, argued by the government and the petitioner for what is exempt, preclinical trial information. The Federal Circuit's opinion, I believe, the Federal Circuit's opinion rejects the rational predicate theory. It does not articulate an alternative standard to that. It merely applies out of the. They spend about ten pages in the appendix trying to do that. But the Federal Circuit didn't do that. That was discussion in there. It gave a lot of background about the statute, which may not have been necessary for its ultimate holding. But the Federal Circuit, when it comes down to it, didn't do anything other than approve the district court's interpretation. Now, if the Federal Circuit did something different than that, which we just — which — Integrity does not believe is the case. The, its judgment should be upheld on the grounds articulated that it could discern no error in the district court's judgment, in the district court's denial of Merck's motion for judgment as a matter of law. And to respond to one Justice O'Connor's earlier question, does this court have to get into a Rule 50 review? The answer is no, because Merck failed to preserve its right to Rule 50 review. In the district court, in the federal circuit, the, the uh, uh, Merck argued the rational predicate standard as a matter of law. That was rejected. Rule 50 review under the intermedic standard is an entirely different argument, and Merck never raised that argument in the before the Federal Circuit. In its brief, Merck relies on pages 50 and 51 uh, of its brief to the Federal Circuit, saying there it argued substantial evidence, but what it argued there was the experiments are rational predicates. Merck never argued before the Federal Circuit that uh, uh, the verdict can't be sustained under Rule 50 under the intermedic standard as opposed to the rational predicate standard. So it's not entitled to that review here. The dissenting judge did not, the dissenting judge, Judge Newman, did not read the court's opinion the way you do. Is that correct? That is correct. Maybe we should take that into account to some extent that someone who participated on the bench had a different take on what her colleagues were saying? That is certainly a consideration, but we disagree with Judge Newman on that point. Is there a difference between uh, you and Merck uh, concerning the scope and extent of the common law research exemption? And if there is, does that even enter into our case? That issue hasn't entered into the case, so there's been no differences articulated, Your Honor. Um, and to get back to the point that Merck did not preserve its right to Rule 50 review under the intermedic standard, even if it had raised that issue before the Federal Circuit, clearly the Federal Circuit didn't reach that issue. 
And if the Federal Circuit didn't reach an issue that was properly presented before it, that was error, and Merck would have had to seek relief from that error, and it did not do so in its petition for certiorari. So I do not believe this Court even needs to address the issue of Rule 50 review. There is no dispute in this case as to the substantive standard that governs the scope of Section 271E1, and Merck, having failed to preserve its rights to Rule 50 review under the intermedic standard, there is no controversy for this Court to decide. If the Court does reach the issue of uh, Rule 50 review under intermedics, it is the case should be decided under the basic principles that it is the exclusive province of the jury to weigh the evidence and to determine the credibility of the witnesses. And my time is up almost, but I'll say one thing. After 25 days of trial, the district judge, in his denial of Merck's motion for judgment as a matter of law, expressly said that the jury had reasonable cause to disregard the testimony of Merck's main witness, Dr. Cherish. And on that ground alone, the judgment of the Federal Circuit should be sustained. Merck can't be rescued for the jury verdict unless this Court determines as a matter of law that the jury was required to believe the testimony of Dr. Cherish. And Merck can't show that and hasn't even attempted to show that. Um, unless there are any questions, I can finish my argument. Thank you, Mr. Flores. Mr. Rosenkranz, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> uh, with my two minutes, I want to make one uh, overarching important point, and it's really in response to uh, a question Justice Scalia asked. The emphasis in the statute is about the use. So let's get past labels about is this drugs discovery or basic research or is it, as Merck says, optimization on the lead drug candidate, and look at exactly what was occurring here. Here, this was not a, gee, uh, we'd like to see what affects angiogenesis. Merck knew what affected angiogenesis. It had a structure, and if you look at page 42 of the supplemental appendix, you will see that structure. It knew exactly what that structure did and how it did it. It then tweaked it by changing literally three atoms to uh, compare that activity with other activity, exactly the sorts of research that any drug innovator would do to verify that they have the best and most effective candidate. Then, with, and with every single one of its, of its experiments, it was examining uh, uh, information that was relevant to mechanism of action, pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, and efficacy. With 10 percent of the experiments, it was also running them in parallel with a series of analogs that were designed to look exactly like the RGD peptides and to work exactly like the RGD peptides. And no rational drug innovator ever proceeds to clinical trials, nor does the FDA want it to, without conducting that research, because you don't spend millions of dollars for expensive toxicology studies until you know you've got the safest and most effective uh, drug candidate. The FDA reviews that evidence because it wants to know why you're proceeding with that candidate. And if you shift midstream to another lead, as Merck, in fact, did in this very case, the FDA wants to understand why. So each of those experiments, even in comparison 
developed information that is relevant to the FDA. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Rosenberg. The case is submitted.